Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Man. Woo! I, oh, Mercy Church, I love the story that God is writing in Lauren's life. I love the story he is writing for Mercy Church. Such a joy to be a part of it. Um, Hey, before I go any further, I've got to real quick take a second and at both locations, welcome back. Everybody join me in welcoming back our college students. They're back in the house. Whether you're at Queens, you're at Wingate, Johnson C. Smith, you're at CPCC or UNC Charlotte, wherever you are, we love you and we are a better church when you are here. Um, We believe, listen, we believe that the college years, those four years can be some of the most transformative in your life. I know that was true for me. Man, over the course of those four years, God used a campus ministry and he used a local church to work a really good, good revolution in my life. Um, And listen, there are... There are over 100,000 college students in the Charlotte area, and we consider it a part of our calling, right down to the core of who we are as a church, a part of our calling to help you encounter God, see what God has for your life, and to prepare you to spend the rest of your life walking as a fully devoted follower of Christ, all right? That's our hope for you. And listen, even to that end, maybe a little step to help you get started Today, after our second service, we're going to have a college lunch, all right? For all students, both locations, it's going to be, though, only at our Independence campus, all right? It's going to be after the second service, so if you're at the second service, Providence Road, listen, it's going to be okay. We're going to have plenty of time. It's only about a 12 to 15-minute drive, and we've got some great barbecue for you over there when you get there. It's a great chance to meet our staff, um, myself, and a bunch of the other college staff, so hope you'll be there, all right? Listen, today's a big day for our whole church. Um, We are kicking off a new series. And one of the ways we're doing that, we're celebrating baptisms, which we always get excited about. And listen, over the course of this morning, we're going to commission 45 new members of Mercy Church. How exciting is that, guys? Man, (laughs) y'all, you got me a little bit. I feel like um, I'm uh, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose this morning. Like I am excited about what we have. And I think that's particularly exciting because of uh, the timing of us starting this particular series that we're in. We're going to be going into the book of Acts, the story of the beginning of the church. If you got your Bibles, you can go ahead, make your way over there. Y'all, this is a very personally exciting time for me. I've been waiting um, for four years to do this series because God used the book of Acts to ignite a fire in me um, several years ago to show me what I was supposed to give my life to. Um, I had a really good church experience growing up. I don't know what your church background was. I had a good church experience right up until I was 13 years old. And then it went really bad. All right. It's a story for another time, but there was an argument in the church and the church ended up splitting and it was a pretty ugly situation. And because of that, especially with the age that I was at, I just got pretty hurt by that. And I got pretty angry at the church. And I was kind of in that spot where I was like, God, if this is 
your people, this is God's people, no thank you. Um, but then in college, as I alluded to, I found a group of guys on campus and I found a local church. And while I was there among that group, I sat down and I read the book of Acts. And I saw in Acts what the church was meant to be. Imperfect for sure, okay? Bunch of sinners, certainly wasn't a perfect group of people. But man, they were unified and they were selfless, seeking to put others above themselves. They are hungry for God to move in their day and yet they are humbly waiting on him to do so. They are boldly obeying God and they're doing so as they're led by the Holy Spirit. They make their whole lives about one name, but it's not their name, it's the name of Jesus. And y'all, in the book of Acts, we're gonna see an awakening. I mean, an awakening where thousands of lives are rescued and redeemed. It is a very inspiring book. And in 2002, I began asking God, as I was reading through this, God, let me be a part of something like this. Let me be a part. Let me see it. Before I go to be with Jesus one day, let me see an awakening that is so big, a move of God, so powerful that only God can get the credit for it. And the whole city around would have to lean back and go, whoa, surely God is at work here. And mercy, as we crack open the book of Acts, I believe we are looking into what an awakening of God looks like. It is, should be, it should hit you deeply personally, uh, very personally, because awakenings happen one soul at a time. All right, but it's also going to be direction setting for us as a church by seeing how the first church put their beliefs into practice. For sure, we're gonna look and see, okay, are we still 21 centuries later still, are we centered on these same things? Are we still giving ourselves to these same things? That's how awakenings happen, right? The original, those ancient truths get rediscovered and reapplied to present context. And I'm praying for, we've been praying for an awakening in Charlotte, but y'all specifically over the course of this series, I'm praying for an awakening of God and a move of God among us. Yeah. That's what I'm praying happens. So we're going to talk about church, all right? And we're going to talk about some of our assumptions we have about church and even down to the word itself. The word church can be misleading. You know, the Bible's word uh, in the original Greek, the word for it is ekklesia. So where you see church, the original Greek word was ekklesia which meant a gathering of people around an idea. Uh, it'd be equivalent, the, maybe a good word we could use would be a movement, right? A group of people united around an idea, going forward with that to see their mission accomplished in their day. But the tragedy is for us that our English word church isn't derived from that Greek word ekklesia. We get it from the German word for church that was established in the Middle Ages called kirche. Forgive me if you know German and I botched that a little bit, okay? But in general. But the, the, important, the important thing I want you to hear is the meaning of the word. That German word meant a sacred place where you gather for religious services. And that meaning fundamentally altered the way people viewed church, and it has still altered and impacted the way people view church today. Church became an institution that you went to in order to consume and receive religious services. It went from being a movement of people you lock arms with and participate with to being a place that you consume services at. And while God has brought certainly awakenings from that at different points throughout church history, listen, 
every generation of Christians is in danger of that kind of mission drift, all right? Here's my clunky way of saying this, uh, but I just choose clear over clever all the time, right? The drift danger facing every church is that we drift from being a movement to just being a place. We, we fossilize into just being a location that you come and consume from. But in these opening pages, the movement, the movement's back in front of us. Through this series, my hope for mercy is that we get inspired to what it means to be the movement of God, the church together. We'll see this church as a, a multicultural, multi-generational, ever-expanding family, a group of people unlike anything the world had ever seen before. Title of our sermon today, we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, of course, and we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go to verse 8, and the simple title for today is that we are a movement. We're a movement. And listen, the thing about movements is they move. They move. The title we've put on the whole series is You Are Sent. And those of you familiar with mercy will recognize that language. It's the last words that we say over one another when we leave our gathering each week. We don't do that because we're not sure how to say goodbye, okay? It's very intentional. We do that as a reminder that we are a people. We are not a place. We're a people, and we move. We're a movement together, sent together by God to show and to tell of the love and glory of God. So the big question in front of us in this series, is Mercy Church going to be a movement or a place? Will we be a deeply united family moving together under the leadership of God's spirit, leading us to take the gospel to our city and to our world, or will we just be a place for religious services, just an event to attend? And I want it to get personal. What about you? Are you just coming to a place to receive? Or are you a part of the movement? Listen, here's what I know. I know in some way or another, you want God to move in your life. But that doesn't happen just by, just by sitting and consuming every weekend. It may start there, but then God is calling you out to be a part of the movement. And it's there when you're in the middle of the movement with a group of people that you're running beside, that's where God does his greatest work in you. Mercy, there is... There's so much for us here in this book. Uh, here's the way the series is going to work, okay? We're going to break the book of Acts into thirds, all right? And over this fall, over the next uh, nine weeks, we're going to cover the first seven chapters. So this series is going to be You Are Sent, Volume 1. And then my hope and plan is that we will hit Volumes 2 and Volume 3 at different points in 2020 that we may drift into 2021, okay? So, uh, of course, we'll be doing some other things as we go along in the calendar year, but that's kind of where we're, we're hoping to go, all right? Let's get into it. Acts 1, verse 1. You guys ready? Yeah. Yes, let's do it. Um, we're going to make it to verse 8, and verse 8 will be our focus for today. So we're going to walk through it one time just to see what it says, and then we'll sit down in verse 8, and I'm going to show you those ancient core practices that I hope we, we rediscover and keep and put in place so that we can be a church moving with God. And I'm showing you them because I think they got to define, they got to define Mercy Church. But first, start in verse 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. All right, anytime you're reading your Bible, it's always good to know kind of what you're reading. What are you getting into here? The author of Acts is a guy named Luke. All right, Luke wrote the gospel according to, Luke. yeah, 
Luke. You guessed it. That's right. Uh, You need to see Luke and Acts as parts one and two of the same book. That's how he put it together. He was a physician by trade. He traveled with the Apostle Paul, ended up being really close to him. uh, Paul would call him his beloved physician. And then Theophilus, the guy he's writing to, seems to be a man of significant social standing who is open to hearing about the Christian message, but doesn't appear to have completely believed it yet, okay? Keep going to verse one. I'm writing this narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Let me say something by way of observation here, all right? Right there uh, at the end of verse one, that began word, uh, this word is pretty interesting word choice for Luke. For those of you that are English majors or English nerds, um, there's a, this word is a present tense infinitive verb, all right? That implies that the action is still happening. And I read uh, several scholars who believe that this is Luke's way of kind of hinting at, of saying that Jesus isn't finished, all right? It's almost as if he's saying Jesus is still going to be working even after he leaves. He's, he's kind of telling Theophilus, listen, Part one, the gospel according to Luke, that was just the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Part two is about what Jesus would continue to do and teach through his Holy Spirit that he promised to send them when he left. That's gonna come up again in a second, so let's just put that thought on the shelf, see how it comes back, all right? Verse three, after he, Jesus, had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Y'all remember, this is important. Luke's writing as a physician. He wants to present the facts. He wants to make sure he gets an ordered account. In fact, the start of the gospel of Luke, let me show you how the the very first part of this whole thing started. The beginning of the gospel of Luke said, it seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very beginning to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. You see what Luke's doing? He's saying, listen, I went and gathered up all the facts. I went and talked to a whole lot of people and I spent some time pulling this together to make sure that what I had was verifiable. That's what you have as you look back at Acts 1 verse 3. Talks about these 40 days. See, during those 40 days, Jesus was proving that his resurrection was real. The disciples see Jesus for the first time and they shout, oh, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, 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 give me some fish. Give me some bread, I'll show you. Come touch my hands. He meets up with them on the road to Emmaus. This wasn't an apparition. This was Jesus alive. And that's a big, big deal. He appeared to hundreds of people. In fact, he once appeared to 500 people at a single time. And Luke wants Theophilus to know, contrary to what many might think about Christianity today, This isn't some Middle Eastern myth that was concocted by a deranged egomaniac in his closet somewhere. It was witnessed, it was testified to by multiple eyewitnesses who didn't know each other. There is an abundance of evidence testifying to the historical reliability of the resurrection that's super important to Luke and it should be to us as well. Because y'all listen, Christianity is staked on a faith claim, but... All worldviews are staked on a faith claim. In fact, even if you're out there saying, "Ah, you know, I'm not really a person of faith, that's a faith claim, all right? Claiming that there is no faith, that I don't believe in anything, is a faith claim. But Christianity is a faith claim based 
on a historical event verified by an abundance of reliable evidence. I would argue it's the most reasonable explanation you'll ever find for why the world is the way it is and how you can have hope in the middle of it. On to verse 4. While he was with them, Luke tells us, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. All right. Now, remember how I said Luke was nodding to uh, this whole idea with that word began uh, about Jesus continuing his ministry? Here's why I said it, because now the main character of the book of Acts is introduced. The work of Jesus is going to be continued through God's Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to get caught up today in that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. A lot of us come from a lot of different backgrounds. If you come from church background, you might be like, oh, I got some opinions on that. We're going to talk about that next week when the event actually happens, okay? The main thing that's so important, though, is how the Holy Spirit is going to work. Understanding this is going to be what's going to help the book of Acts make sense to you throughout our time in it, all right? Christians believe, get ready, we're going to all together, we're going to put our theology hats on, and that's really good, okay? We're going to put our hats on, and I want to tell you a core understanding what we call a doctrine of the Christian faith, all right? Christians believe there is one God who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all right? What's important here is that we don't think that Jesus morphed from being a person into being the Holy Spirit, like a, a caterpillar morphs into a butterfly or something like that. No, Jesus is going to ascend, and then God the Holy Spirit is going to descend, and he's going to come down, and he's going to dwell inside of Jesus's followers. And according to John 16, if you go back and read that, the role of this Holy Spirit is to illuminate Christ to his people. He guides us in following Christ. He brings to mind God's word, which tells us how to obey Christ our king. Christ remains the king on the throne, and the spirit shows us how to obey Christ in any and all situations. So Christians, we say we are followers of Christ led by the Holy Spirit. We ask God, and through his spirit, he changes our desires to desire the things that God desires. He counsels us. He guides us by bringing God's words to mind and to life for us. He unites us. This is beautiful. We're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. He unites us to other believers. And in doing so, what ends up happening is the Spirit illuminates Christ to others through us. We are, in this sense, a people led by God's Holy Spirit. And what becomes abundantly clear by this point in the Bible is that God wants to be vitally present in his people, and he wants to do his work through his people. God wants to move through us. That's what I want you to grab hold of. Most versions of the Bible, maybe if, if you have one that says the Acts of the Apostles is kind of the title that it gives, but it'd be much more theologically accurate to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. In Acts, people don't just, listen, they don't just hear about God from the apostles. According to scripture, they're actually hearing God through the teachings and the actions of the believers in the early church. And that matters to us because the story doesn't end with the apostles. When people hear from Christians about Jesus today, they're not just hearing us talk about him. 
They are hearing him speak through us because the same spirit that was with them is the same one with us. That's going to be a theme in Acts, okay? Something that I'm asking God to really just uncork, if you will, in your life and spill out into every area of your life that God is actually alive and working through you into the lives of others. That's my hope and prayer that you grab hold of. I want you to hear that the story of the church from this first story that we read about all the way through church history, all the way to right here in the Charlotte area in 2019 is the story of the Holy Spirit speaking and moving through people to transform lives through his power for his glory. And that power, that power is now resting among the people of God. And God has commissioned us to do something with it. Let's keep going, verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, this is the disciples asking, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? They're saying, okay, listen, Jesus, we've kind of put all our eggs in your basket, all right? We believe you are the Messiah, and according to the Old Testament, according to our scriptures, the Messiah, the Savior, is going to establish himself as the king over all the earth. He's a good king. He brings peace to earth and God's people who are oppressed now. And you got to think these disciples have been ostracized now. Um, they're going to one day be at peace and be able to walk in victory in your kingdom. So considering they've staked everything on this, it's a pretty natural question. Considering he's risen from the dead, they're thinking, okay, God's doing something here. It's a, a natural question. It's actually Jesus's answer that's a real surprise. And his answer sets up the rest of the book. Verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but, this is our verse, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It's gonna be our key verse for us in this series. If I could summarize the book of Acts in one verse, it'd be Acts 1.8. It's like the mission statement. It's it's so important to understanding this that we're going to spend the rest of our time in here today because I want to show you three defining markers of the movement, of the church as a movement. I told you when the church recovers those ancient truths and applies them to present situation, man, that sets us up to be used by God for him to move in our day. We can't conjure God and make him move, but we can open ourselves and prepare ourselves for God to move. And I think that's what we see uh, here in the book of Acts. Um, the first marker, it comes from our first word in verse eight. Again, I'm just gonna slowly walk through verse eight. The very first word, he says, you. Jesus says, now you're not supposed to, to know the time, but you, he's talking to, that's what I want you to catch. He's talking to the people who had chosen to follow him with their whole lives. Here's the way I'll say it, that first marker. Their, their hearts and minds were captured by the gospel. Has the gospel captured your heart and your mind? And I'm including a question on there because it was something that I want you to take home and really think through, process through, reflect on. I read a book this week. This is a great title of a book. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Great title. Um, and for the first 120 pages, the author listed off in excruciating detail all of the consequences and all of the risks that were associated with believing the gospel in the first three centuries. Listen, the majority of adherents to Christianity were not social elites then. There was no social status 
that would benefit you by believing this message, you didn't become a Christian so that you could network and move up in the world. In fact, the social consequences were very severe because Christianity, here's what it did that no other religion did. It called for the exclusive worship of one God inside of a culture where acceptance of all gods was expected. Worship of multiple gods was expected. You were expected to worship the gods of your family. You were expected to worship the gods of your vocation, right? And then of course you were expected to worship Caesar. And it was okay if you worship Jesus, but you still had to worship these other gods. And Christians refused. They refused. In fact, they came in and they said that those aren't real gods. There's only one. You hear how intolerant that must have sounded to everyone in their culture. And so they were ostracized. People are like, hey man, last week you drank a toast to the God of war. What's up with you this week? Why aren't you honoring these gods you've honored your whole life? AD 64, Nero, Emperor Nero, goes on an all-out genocide, seeking to rid the Roman Empire, especially Rome itself, of all Christians, and he murders them in ways too gruesome to recount, simply because they profess faith in Christ. Y'all, my point is, and the author's point was, Christianity had everything to lose and nothing to gain in this world. So why would they risk it all? The way the author, Larry Hurtado, uh, he said it was simple, wonderful. Here's what he said after 120 pages. He said, listen, unless those who became Christians were seriously lacking in basic intelligence, we must presume that they judged that it was worth the consequences and the costs. Their conviction, plain and simple, was that Jesus died as a substitute payment for sinners. He wasn't another prophet. He wasn't one among gods. He and he alone was God himself, the only true God. We, humanity, crucified him because we are a rebellious, traitor race of people who would rather run our own lives than submit to God our creator. But in the universe's greatest irony, our murder of him, his sacrificial death was the payment that God accepted for our sins. And if we would acknowledge and receive it, we can have life everlasting. They believed that he resurrected bodily from the dead. You gotta understand, they didn't have a framework for this kind of belief before it shows up. That their God would die a criminal's death in weakness and humility, but then would resurrect from the grave. The reason they believed it is because they saw it. They saw him and they recognized well, if this is true, this is the greatest act of grace ever, the greatest message of mercy ever, God dying to rescue his own children. And if it's true, it's the most important message ever because it is the only hope for salvation for the whole world. If there were other ways to God, surely, surely Jesus wouldn't have had to die, right? Jesus is in the garden and he's saying, Father, please let this cup pass from me. If there were other ways, God would have responded, okay, son, you know what? You're right. Just tell them to be good people. Tell them to make sure their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. Just tell them to, to give it a good go, a good try, okay? And you don't need to do that. That's not what happened. He didn't do that because there wasn't another way. Peter would summarize the apostles' message in Acts 4. We're gonna see it in a couple of weeks. He would say, neither is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And they would take that message all over the world. The only way to the Father, Jesus is gonna say, is through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And they saw deep truth 
and deep beauty in this sacrificial love. And y'all, they just, they believed it with everything they had. They surrendered their whole life to it. And listen, I'm spending time here on that first word, you, on describing who they were, because our current generation is witnessing the quick death of cultural Christianity. This kind of hollow Christianity where belief comes at little cost because the culture at large once operated with the same values, that whole thing is fading quickly. You want proof? If you want proof, I want you to go out on a Thursday with our college staff, and I want you to talk to students on campus and ask them if it is offensive to say that Jesus is the only way to God. And listen, here's what's happening. In some Christian circles, people are panicking because, oh no, Christianity is losing its adherence. No, it's not. It's losing casual fans, not devoted followers. Y'all, our cultural moment is giving us an incredible opportunity. It is drawing a line more clearly in the sand than it has in a few generations. And it's saying, okay, do you really believe it? Do you really? Because it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you social standing with your peers. You might even lose some friends. You might not get ahead in your career if it comes out that you are a follower of this Christianity thing. But the great news is, and the great news of the book of Acts and what all of these people together believed is that it was worth it. It was worth it. The hope Christ gives you for life in this world and for life in eternity, it's worth it. The purpose Christ gives you in this life is greater than any purpose, any purpose you could give yourself to. The gospel says, the God of the universe loves you. He loves you. And he has offered you and the world salvation. Will you stake your life? And here's a better way, I think, to say it in our cultural moment. Will you stake your reputation on that being true? It's either true or it's not. In Mercy Church, one thing we must not be is casual fans of Jesus. You will see in the book of Acts that there is no room for that. God moves. We want to see God move. He moves through devoted followers, not casual fans. And the way they showed they believed it was through baptism. That was their first step anyways. They went into the water and they came back up because that's what Christ told them to do, right? Go and make disciples, baptizing them, right? And then teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. It was a symbol that they believed their salvation came from Jesus going into the grave as a payment for their sin and then rising up out from the dead, giving them victory over death. And we're gonna celebrate baptisms this weekend. And then we're gonna celebrate it again at the end of September. And I think that for many of you is gonna be a step of faith, a first step in moving from casual fan to devoted follower, from getting off the sideline and stepping into the movement. That's gonna be your first step is saying, I'm staking my reputation on this being true. And I'm identifying and saying, yes, I believe. I believe the gospel message. In fact, that leads right to the second one, the second marking that we see of this movement. We see it in that phrase in verse eight after it says you, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Listen, they were surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Are you? Both verse five and again in eight show two times where Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is gonna be the key to the effectiveness of their ministry from this point on. Each one of them is gonna receive the promised Holy Spirit. That promise extends right to every Christian today. 
He says, Jesus says, if we believe the gospel, we have that Holy Spirit dwelling in us, guiding us, and empowering us for our ministry. In fact, I want to read verse 8 again, and I want you to, I'm going to show you where you can put your name in here, okay? Because I think this is big to do, it's something for you to really reflect on. Do you believe this? He says, but Spence, you put your name, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on, Spence. And again, your name, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the promise for every Christian. And it's a dangerous claim, especially in this day. Those with a Jewish background would think this is definitely blasphemous. The spirit of God was reserved for the temple. The spirit of God, listen, even if a person went into the room where the presence of God was, they die because the holiness of God would consume them. How can we dare say that that spirit is inside of us? I had a Jewish friend years ago. I was trying to explain this to him and say, yeah, man, I believe the spirit of God lives in me. And he said, that's absurd. He said, this is the problem I have with you guys. You're so casual with the spirit of God. If the spirit of God was in you, you die. And I said, man, that's some great theology that you're rocking with there. I said, but the only reason I'm able to say the spirit of God lives in me is because Jesus has cleansed me from the unrighteousness that the, whole, the holiness of God would consume me with. And so I'm constantly believing on Jesus's righteousness on my behalf. And that's how I believe that the spirit of God can live inside of me. But Jesus says, he says, when he saves you, he puts that spirit with you, which means the mighty power of God is with us and here to lead us. In fact, we're gonna see in a couple of weeks how the Spirit moves in, in different ways in different people. He bestows spiritual giftings on people so that we can each illuminate Christ. We can each display the love and power of God and the character of God in different ways. Some teaching, some evangelism, some service. But the point is, we get to encounter God through one another. And this connects actually uh, right to the last part of verse 8, the third, I think, marking the third marking of this movement, they were devoted to the mission. Are you? See the end of the verse? You're gonna do something with this spirit, with this power that comes on you. You're gonna be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Listen, people surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit in here will testify here. Have you surrendered? So my question is, have you surrendered here? Because if you have, the evidence will be with your words. That's what happens over and over in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 4, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles at Pentecost. They begin declaring God's praises in a multitude of languages. Acts 4, 8, Peter is filled with the Spirit. He preaches that Jesus is their ruler, their only hope for salvation. Acts 4, 31, the disciples are filled with the Spirit and they speak the word of God boldly right in the face of severe persecution. Acts 9, 20, Paul is filled with the Spirit and then immediately he begins to preach in the synagogues. Is this you? Are you a witness? Are you, and think of it in the legal sense of the word. Are you a witness to what Christ has done? See, listen, God never draws you into himself without also sending you back out. One of my friends calls this the gospel flow. He says the gospel comes into you, it changes you, but it was never meant to just stay with you. Instead, when you receive the gospel, you become a conduit of the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit working in and through you. 
That's what we're going to see time and time again in the book of Acts. New beginnings all over the place with one singular purpose, being witnesses of what Jesus had done. Think about it this way. Plain and simple, when God does something in you, man, it is for his glory, and you're to rejoice in that, but it's not to stop with you. When he does something in you, he also has someone else in mind. He's not doing it just for you. He's got someone in mind who's going to hear you be a witness. You are going to testify to what has happened there, and it's, he's going to use you to change their lives. That's the movement. Y'all, that's the movement. That's why it's, when it's really happening, there's no possible way we can control it because we're just testifying to what God has done and God's spirit is using that, not our uh, abilities. I'm talking about that in a second. He's just moving and you never know what the spirit of God is gonna do. Listen, I imagine as I say that, are you a part of the mission? I know you, you're, you might start to line up excuses for what's keeping you from it. Maybe like, well, I'm not really skilled at that, telling other people about my faith. I wouldn't be able to be a witness. Well, yes and no, to respond to you. Um, first of all, on your own, no, you're right. But then, if you have God's spirit, that's all you need because the spirit's the one that does the work. All you need to do is to believe that the spirit is working constantly around you and that the spirit uses you to speak God's word to other people, that the spirit of God illuminates Christ through you. That's all you need to believe. I heard of four people this week who believed the gospel for the very first time. How? Because a member of Mercy Church testified to what God had done in their life. And their whole eternity changed as a result of that. That's what the Spirit does in the movement of God. Maybe you think, this sounds great, but man, I, my, my life, my margins are super thin and I just don't have time. Listen, first, I do need to say, movements move when people stop worshiping their calendar and their comfort, and they start worshiping God. But second, we got to see this idea of testifying, what we often call evangelism. We got to see it as everyday life with gospel intentionality. That's why we fight so hard, y'all, not to overprogram our church around here, so that the movement, us, as a people, can go out and move. The Spirit of God can move through us in our community. So do what you do already. Now do it strategically. Be thinking, how might God want to move through me in someone's life, in the circles I'm already in? Maybe you say, yeah, well, even if I do that, it's uncomfortable to talk about Jesus. Yep. <laughs> yep. Always will be. Listen, the question isn't, if it's, it won't always be, but a lot of times it'll be. The question isn't if it's uncomfortable. The question is, has the gospel really captured your heart and mind? Do you really think others need this? Do you really believe with Jesus when he says, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him? If so, if you believe that, you'll overcome that uncomfortable hurdle because urgency triumphs awkward every time. The fact that we aren't actively witnessing to Jesus's death and resurrection, it's not an ability problem, all right? It's not a time problem, not an awkwardness problem. It's an apathy and belief problem. Here's the way um, I shared this with our 
our church um, four years ago before we launched Mercy during the summer. Uh, it's one of these um, things that God kind of used when I was reading through Acts a long time ago. Uh, and it's part of a sermon by Charles Spurgeon um, who talked about this very idea of how our hearts, so what happens down in here, we believe down in here affects what we say, right? God changes our hearts and then we'll speak of it. He says, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering this message of love into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. He said to his church, he said, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread, abo- or spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you don't love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, he goes on to say, you're like one that has found honey. You, you'll call others to taste of its sweetness. You're like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you found Jesus and you're anxious that they should find him too. Y'all, mercy. That's the movement that I long to be a part of. Sold out for the gospel, like believing deep down, fully captured in our hearts and minds that the gospel is true encountering that love of God, being led by the Holy Spirit, encountering the love of God daily as we commune with him and joyfully eager to invite others into the great hope that we have found. So I wanna close this, just praying for a moment, reflecting on this and allowing the spirit to begin to work on each one of us. Would you bow your head and let me guide you through just a brief response in prayer. just want to go through these three simple things. The first question, do you believe the gospel message? Not just would you check it on a box, would you stake your reputation on it? Maybe you've never believed that before and that's where you are. I'm here to tell you today, you can receive God's gift of forgiveness, no one is too far gone to receive it. You can receive it today. And he promises his spirit will come, will begin to change you. And you can have everlasting life today. Salvation from your sins and life eternal. Say, God, I believe Jesus died for me. And I receive that act as a payment for my sins. So I'm turning from my sins and I'm surrendering to you as Lord and Savior of my life. Christian, maybe you need to pray that in a way that says, God, I think I've gone through the motions with you for a while, but I'm staking my life on it today. I'm done with cultural Christianity. I'm not just gonna follow Christ where it's convenient. No, I give you my whole life. 
Are you surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit? You just almost with a posture of open hand say, God, I want to live as you have called me to live. I don't just want to fit you in where it's convenient. I want to be surrendered to you. Let my life, pray this to him, let my life be about your name, not mine. Are you devoted to the mission? To being about the advancement of God's glory and not your own? I want you to pray. I want a name to come to mind, Christian. Someone far from God, but close to you. Just ask God. God, I want my life to testify to this person about the great hope that I have found in Christ. Use me in any way so that they might know about Christ's great love. God, we give ourselves again to you. God, would you move in our church? Call us back to yourself, away from sin. Would we see that you are better than anything else the world has to offer? And would, with joy, great joy, would you unite us together? And God, use us to declare the great love of Christ to our city. Bring an awakening, Father, to Mercy Church that would carry all the way to the ends of the earth one day. We love you. We worship you in Christ's holy name. Amen.